There's Ronaldo! Oh my goodness! You don't save those! Out of this world! Messi! 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 3 nothing. Landon Donovan, there are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross, and Dempsey is denied again! And Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! Certainly through! Oh, it's incredible! You could not write a script like this! For the fourth time, the United States of America are crown champions of the world. From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. We are nearing the end of the second day of no World Cup soccer. The round of 16 has concluded the quarterfinals right around the corner on Friday and Saturday. It's time for another episode of FUVFC. I'm Nick Guzman, alongside Keenan Troy and James Burley. Guys, we've seen our beloved United States men's national team exit the tournament. We saw a lot of other exciting games that round of 16. The quarterfinal round it looks to be just as exciting. First off, how are you guys doing today? I'm good, Nick. Um, a little bit under the weather, but you know, still persevering. A ton of great knockout football we saw this past you know, five days from the round of 16. Obviously, the U.S. not getting out was probably the big headline at least here domestically. Second biggest is probably that Morocco defeat of Spain. Really looking forward to breaking things down with you guys. And, you know, it seems that the U.S., even that they're out of the World Cup, is still remaining relevant in U.S. soccer headlines, but also in terms of world, you know, United States sports culture, which is really refreshing to see. Yeah, it was fun to, you know, be back in the spotlight for a little while here. Uh, we got a little guest spot on one-on-one talking to soccer and, you know, when else is that going to be okay? So it's still great just to take a step back and realize we're still full swing into the World Cup, and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it kind of stinks that the U.S. are out, but as as we'll get into, um, you know, I'm sure that it's not the end of the world for us U.S. fans, and we have a lot to be proud of. But yeah, there's a lot of ton of storylines here throughout this World Cup that you know are really really exciting, and I'm I'm really really excited to be talking about it with you guys. We'll get into the upcoming quarterfinal action later, but I think the best place to start is with that U.S.-Netherlands game. It was the first game of that round of 16. And on the pod last week, we were very hopeful about our chances. We thought we'd give it a real go. You know, the Dutch didn't look that convincing in the group stage. They had a pretty easy group with, with Qatar and, and Ecuador and Senegal. And they and they looked like at times they lacked a little bit of attacking creativity. With they, We knew they were going to be solid at the back. And... We come out and make some sloppy, sloppy defensive mistakes. People don't track runners. Tyler Adams doesn't track a runner on the first goal. They score, you know, two identical goals to start the game. Then on the third goal, in the second half, Anthony Robinson loses his marker on the back post. It's it was shoddy defending from the U.S. and they ultimately bow out of this World Cup by a score of three to one. I just want to start with your initial reactions from this match because it was a game where obviously the United States were underdogs, but it was also a game where what we'd seen in the group stage and how solid the United States had been defensively that we thought this was a game that we'd get something out of. We could potentially go to the quarterfinals for the first time since 2002. And the performance that, that occurred um, on Saturday just didn't really back up 
the hype that we gave it going into it. So I'll start with you, Keenan. Just your first initial reaction to that U.S. performance against the Dutch. Yeah, I, I think watching that game and re-listening to last week's podcast, James had said something that I thought reflected all of our you know beliefs going into that game was that the Dutch was going to can you know dictate the pace of play, possess the ball, and what we saw from Louis Van Aal setting up in that match was they were more than comfortable with the United States possessing. And I think you know as much as credit as we give you know best midfield we've ever had with Adams, McKinney, and Musa. It's still that lack of creativity in the final third that killed us. And so Van Hall set up, you know, looked to sting us on the counter, felt that, you know, they could commit numbers forward, and the United States didn't have the creativity or the potency to really make it matter in a counterattack or, you know, when they have one number up in possession, even though the Dutch kind of committed numbers back, even if the United States, when they did have a number up, the the potency in the final third was still lacking. You know, Pulisic had that early chance. How much, if he scores that, changes the game? I think it does remarkably so. But, again, spotty defense, which I think going into that game, that's where I felt most convinced how well the United States defense played as a back four throughout the group stage. You know, whether it was Walker Zimmerman or if it was Cameron Carter-Vickers alongside Tim Ream with Destin... With Destin Robinson on the wings, we kind of, I don't want to say took it for granted how well they had played, but the defensive uh, lapse of judgments on not picking up runners ultimately cost the U.S. And when Daly Blind scores that goal right on the you know verge of halftime, that was the final nail in the coffin. And, you know, it would have taken a United States miracle to get back into the game. But as I said earlier, they're not that potent in attack to score more than a goal a half, if that. I mean, my initial reactions... Uh, were that it was something of a wasted opportunity. You know, uh, I still hold the position that had they won that, it would have been the single biggest win in U.S. soccer history, you know, just because we've only ever been to that quarterfinal one time since 1930, and we saw the shockwaves that it had for the U.S. soccer program. But we also took down Mexico in the round of 16 to get there. We have never... Um, taken down a world power, a footballing world power, in a knockout game at the World Cup uh, since 1930. The U.S. has never done it um, on the men's side. And I think overall for all of U.S. soccer, it would have been the biggest win because it would have been uncharted territory. We'd never done it before. And we saw just how hard of a thing it is to do. I mean, that Netherlands team, they're legit. Like they, They're going to give Argentina, and we're going to talk about this later, they're going to give Argentina a run for their money in the quarterfinals. And for what it's worth, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still proud of the body of work that the U.S. put out in Qatar, considering who our opponents were and who the players that we have, and there was growth. But as for the match, I mean, we did not deserve to win it, and we got beaten by a smarter and better team with a smarter and better coach. And that's not to take anything away from Greg Berhalter. I know there's 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 definitely valid criticism you can give him, even the way that he came into this game. But Louis Van Gaal got it right from minute one to minute ninety. It was just an excellent. Excellent coaching performance, C- completely outcoached by one of the the greats of modern football. Like he's one of the greatest coaches in the world right now. So it's not something that we should be totally ashamed about or embarrassed about. But the decision to give the U.S. the ball, the bulk of possession, especially in the first half, was just genius because it is something that we we had in each of the first three games. Even if we didn't expect having a lot of the ball against England, we ended up having some of it, and we did pretty good things with it. But again, it's in the final third. The ideas just weren't there. And we got punished by a team with a lot of quality going down our throats. And 
that's that's what happens when you play against those teams uh, that have that sort of quality that we just don't at the moment. Even though this is definitely the most talented U.S. team ever, we just don't have that quality compared to the Netherlands. And the round of 16, unfortunately, seems like our limit. But the reason I still call it a wasted opportunity because the game was still there. You look at the goals that we conceded, they're careless mistakes. A lot of it probably uh, is at, uh, attributed to, f- to fatigue for some players playing in all four games and simply because we just don't have depth in every area. I know people were saying, well, Serginho Des fell asleep on you know, the, day, uh, the second goal because, uh, because we didn't rotate Joe Scally into the lineup. I'm like, well, really, we, c- we can point out the hypotheticals, but the fact is a better team beat us, and we shouldn't hang our heads low because we know what to expect going forward four years from now from this group. There's going to be continuous growth because they have so much potential. And overall, disappointing but not surprising because that Netherlands team is really that much better than us at the moment, and we shouldn't be dissatisfied with a round of 16 exit, even though we know we can achieve more. And it was disappointing, just the way in which the match turned out, the fact that we, the Haji Wright got that goal back in the second half, and then you're thinking, there's no way, are yeah, we going to do brutal. this? And then we're pushing for a couple minutes, and then that goal with uh, the Dumfries at the back post over Robinson's head just had no idea where he was. Really, the wingbacks for the Dutch had really good games and killed us. Dumfries and, and Daly Blind, even at his age, was, was getting forward. But I think for us in this game, the biggest thing that... that that stood out to me was the number nine position again. Jesus Ferreira really looked very, very out of place in that first half. And, you know, Greg responded at halftime, bringing on Gio Reyna, bringing off Ferreira. But I think once Sargent got hurt, it made that job so much more difficult. I think Sargent had proved himself to be the most useful player in that position. And Haji Wright really, you know, coming off the bench against Iran wasn't really that great. In, against England, he didn't make that much of an imp- impact. So Greg's hand was kind of forced to to play Ferrer, and he just looked a little out of place. And that just kind of encapsulated the way we the way we looked going forward, not just in this game, but the whole tournament. You know, there's the the stat that we had the most crosses of any team in this World Cup yet. We we you know scoring off them proved to be very difficult. And then there's the whole thing of set pieces. You know, that's a when you play a team like the Dutch, who who are you know, of course, the big at the back, but a team that's probably better than you in, in, in most positions, set pieces are such a great opportunity to, to nick a goal. Yet, you know, in this tournament, our set pieces were atrocious for the most part. You know, I think in some games, Christian Pulisic's delivery were, were, were pretty bad. And in other games, he was getting the ball in some pretty good spots, and just for, our runners just were not at all. And then Harry Maguire just wins everything in the yeah. air. For some and it's, it's disappointing when, when, a, when an entire aspect of your game is just is just taken away like that. But I think... When you kind of zoom out, out out of this match, and you know we were all hopeful last week, and it didn't turn out the way we wanted to, and you look at this World Cup as a whole, and the way Greg Berhalter went about this tournament, I think it's 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 hard to judge a little bit because when you look at it on the outside, okay, made it to the round of sixteen. That's kind of that's kind of been the spot. You know, twenty fourteen we lose in the round of sixteen. Twenty ten we lose in the round of sixteen. That's kind of like the hump that we need to find a way to get over but then you look about how young this group is and what he did besides his Netherlands match and how we were set up defensively and how solid we looked the addition of Tim Ream who didn't play a minute in qualifying that was very good but the ideas going forward were, were lacking so uh, Keenan I want to ask when you we were all very very excited after the group stage and the win against Iran does this change sort of your your attitude towards how this tournament went for these for the US men or or is is it still a success in your eyes 
I I, I want to say it's a success because obviously getting back to the World Cup and out of the group was, I think, where everyone placed this group. I think after 2018, the introduction of this new young nucleus, I at least, and I think I re- you know, respect your guys' sentiments too in saying that getting to the World Cup was never going to be the issue or certainly should not have been the issue. Getting out of the group proved something to me that this group can compete. I don't think it's a, a failure because of what it brings going forward. You know, having competed at a World Cup, you know, you hope that in 2026 when the United States hosts, the majority of this squad will be playing together still. So, you know, that collective experience, you know, is worth something. You know, it's worth something playing in a top competition. It's worth, you know, getting respect from a footballing powerhouse like the Netherlands who Louis van Gaal in his pre-match press conference said, hey, this isn't going to be a cakewalk for us. We have to, you know, be tactically sound, and they were. Or with England, you know, earning some respect, playing them to a draw that was drastically different than the draw we saw against them in 2010 where, you know, a fluke goal from Clint Dempsey gets us back in the match. But all in all, I, I still think there's a question mark as to where the United States goes from this because as we saw leading up to the World Cup, and you hit the nail on the head when you talked about Tim Ream not even included in this 11, you know, in the 11 or the 23 going into camps and qualifying, you know, not really playing for this national team and then emerging as a star at center back. I think there's question for me at least in terms of how does the United States build on this because, you know, we've seen Greg fluctuate his roster so often, and I know I'm speculating way far in advance in saying this, So in the, but I, I think there's still some questions for me as to how does this group take this as a positive. Is it a positive? Yes, but how does it become a positive in the, you know, terms of the culture of u.s soccer is my big question so is it a positive for me yeah but i i just don't know if this you know leadership has what it takes to make this performance the standard the the reason why i'm still optimistic and why i will consider it a, a success is because this group was never about 2022 it was always about 2026 so for 2022 to be a success there would have to be an indication of growth and I think we can all agree that there was definitely an indication of growth. If you look at where this program was on December 2018 when Greg Berhalter took over, I mean, there was not a lot to be excited about except for the fact that we had so many young players that we were like, maybe these guys will turn out pretty good. We have some good young guys in MLS, some guys making the jump to Europe, and then we had our golden boy Christian Pulisic to build around, and we've done that. And we, like I said earlier, we have a body of work at this World Cup that we can be proud of. I mean... Look, uh, the draw against Wales was demoralizing in the way that we gave up that last goal because of the penalty, but we played well, really well in that first half, struggled in that second half, and then we build off that with a good 90-minute performance against a really tough England team that, if you look at them now, can honestly go on to win the whole World Cup, and that's not out of the realm of possibility to say. Then we followed it up by getting a much-needed win over Iran that, you know, for the most part, we were in control of that game, but it didn't always look pretty. I mean, and then lost to a, a really tough Netherlands team. I think you have to be considering that a success because we're not worth more than beating Netherlands to go to the quarterfinals at this moment. We're just not. And if, in order for the U.S. to reach the quarterfinals, in order for the U.S. to be a final eight team at a World Cup, it would mean that a bigger team had made a mistake. 
So we have to we have to take an honest look at where this group is at because we know where we the, where they can go and we have to look at where they've come from. But where they are right now is 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 honestly a round of sixteen exit to a bigger side. So I think you have to take the positives, look at it, saying, look, we know we can do better. We know we could if we nick a goal here or there on a set piece. If we get lucky, we can reach into the quarterfinals. And ultimately, that's the goal is to progress as far as possible in the World Cup. But if we saw growth at the 2022 World Cup, I think you have to consider it a success going into 2026. The only reason I'm skeptical, sorry to jump in, Nick, is I I think that from what we saw, yeah, there's a lot of growth. But as we talked about this Netherlands game, and I would even make the case for that Wales game in the second half, you know, even that Iran game, I would say where this team struggled the most was from a tactical perspective. So that's why I say, can we take this as a a success? I'm not sure because I think a lot of the successes the United States had was contingent on talent. I don't think they out, you know, I don't think Greg Berhalter and his technical staff, you know, put forth a strategy that would give them an upper hand on any team. The set pieces is indicative of that. You know, they hire a set pieces coach and they can't generate anything from, you know, what should be high dangerous scoring opportunities. So I I think there's growth from a personal side, undoubtedly, in terms of, you know, the experience for players and, you know, players really coming into their own. I don't deny that. I just think that we have to, at least I'm skeptical of the growth in terms of U.S. soccer as a whole, you know, this national team from a, a coaching standpoint, because I don't think there is a single instance where we can say a Burhalter adjustment or, you know, a set piece they ran or a, a defensive structure they set up. I don't think we can say there was a single instance or, you know, a resounding instance where that was the difference in a game. And I, I when we get into our conversation about should Greg Burhalter stay, that also makes me wonder if we can con- consider this a success because if we get the same mediocrity that we've been receiving you know from Greg Burhalter you know maybe excluding this World Cup but throughout qualifying and you know never really adapting our style of play to the talent that we have and the lacking in certain areas that the United States currently has I I don't know how that sets us up any better for 2026. Yeah and we'll get into whether Greg has run his course as as USMNT manager in, in, a, in a second. But the other thing I want to touch, touch on is just the depth of this team or the lack thereof and, and how noticeable it is against some of these other, you know, top teams in that top opposition. You think about somebody like, you know, France, who, who the defending champions who are who are favorites again to win this World Cup. You know, Lucas Hernandez goes down at left back and who do they and then Theo Hernandez's brother, who's an equally as world class player, comes in and takes his place. You know, for us, if if Anthony Robinson got hurt, our tournament is done. If it's 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 that kind of thing where we're just a step behind in terms of our quality. We've got you know 13, 14 players, I think fifteen maybe who look really comfortable on a World Cup stage. You go beyond that, and there's people who look out of place. Whether it's Jesus Ferreira or 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 Shaq Moore or all, players all like of that. all of whom who played, all of them who played. But you could but there's a the the the, the step down in quality from somebody like Sergino Dest to Shaq Moore is so noticeable and and I think as time goes on and as our players continue to develop through MLS academies they make their moves to Europe I think that depth will improve in four years time I think it was just you know sort of what James is alluding to four years too early but it also there were there were also things in this tournament where you can say it was a success but some of the decisions Greg Berhalter made 
you know, questionable. And I think this will lead us right into a conversation about Greg and his future because there's some speculation about whether or not he even wants to stay as manager of this job, whether he's ready to move on. And, you know, it seems like there's some conversations happening between him and U.S. soccer. But should uh, – James, I'm going to start with you on this one. Should Greg get the choice to, to stay or leave, or do you think he should – well, essentially just are you Greg in or Greg out at this point? Do you think he showed enough of this tournament to lead us, you know, through another cycle, or maybe if, if not another cycle, at least the next couple of years? I, I think I think he was – as long as there – and I said this on the podcast – last year and I've been saying this for years you can ask my brothers they know about this I was saying because all the dialogue going back to before World Cup qualifying started surrounding Greg Berhalter and this group of players was that they were looking ahead to 2026 and 2022 was a stepping stone which I it, that's okay that's a strategy but also you shouldn't overlook a World Cup and, and I think based on the performance that they didn't end up doing that for that reason I think it would would have taken a disaster in Qatar for Greg to have not been at least offered the job again. We're in a limbo now where it's it's his if he wants it, and I, I think that's the case. If it's his if he wants it. And if if I'm US Soccer Federation, I'd probably I'd probably give it to him. Uh I'm I'm I have to say I'm Greg in at the moment. I totally agree that there were a lot of decisions even at this World Cup that he got wrong. Um but I, I think right now if you if you look at the pedigree of where this team was four years ago to now. And I'm not saying that Greg is responsible for it in its entirety because he's not. A lot of it is just the talented players that we have. But for me, it makes a lot of sense that if the plan at the beginning was to make this an eight-year core group with Greg at the helm and these players learning from him and whether or not you think he's teaching them anything, I think it makes sense to keep them together. And I know there's a, there's a lot of discussion now. Is it even worth keeping national team managers for more than one cycle? And I just read a great article. I forget who wrote it. I'm sorry about that. But it basically highlighted that if you look at the teams that are in the quarterfinals now, like seven or six or seven of them have um, coaches that are either consecutively serving their second term as a serving their second term as a, a national team manager or have had their second stint in Louis van Gaal's case. So for me, I think it makes a lot of sense to keep Berhalter around because of the consistency and continuing to see the growth in this program with the same manager. That said, I still think if there's a manager with better ideas that can get better ideas out of this group, I'd be totally willing to interview and and even hire them if they, if they seem like they can bring more out of these players than Berhalter. But if you look at what he's been able to achieve and you know that these players are only going to get better, it doesn't make sense to to go out and necessarily hire a new manager because they qualified for the World Cup, albeit at the on by the skin of their teeth at the end because of that loss to Costa Rica on the last match day. It made it look worse than it was, but it wasn't great. We only won one away game against a Honduras team that went winless. So there's obviously room for growth, but I still have to... Th- if you look at the way that they played in this World Cup... And I, I would argue that tactically there was there was uh, some progression. I mean, the four four two defensive structure against England, that's Bearhalter's ideas. You look at the goal we scored against Iran, we've scored, I think, three or four goals uh, just like that with the midfielder dropping it back, floating it into the fullback who runs high, and then the fullback squares it across to the late runner. I mean, we did that against Trinidad and Tobago in the Gold Cup 2019. We did it against Honduras in the Nations League with PFOX goal. And then we did it at the World Cup with Pulisic. He put his... Quite literally put everything on the line to score that goal. So, I mean, I think the players have, and they showed this in the Nations League game against Mexico, they buy what Greg sells. I think they'd run through a wall for him low-key 
Like I, I know I know a lot of people don't believe that. I, I that's my impression. And for me, I think it, it would be a bigger risk to hire someone else at this point than not to continue with Greg, even though I definitely think there are managers out there who could get uh who can get more out of this team than Greg. But from from where we are right now, it seems like this is this is this was the plan from the get, and I think we stick with it. And I know that might be unpopular, even just in this room. No, no. I see. The thing is, is I we're in this paradox now where it's Greg's if he wants it, and it's seemingly no one else's. You know, the only motivating factor towards getting a new coach is whether Greg Berhalter wants to try and pursue greener pastures. The only thing why I'm skeptical of Greg going forward is if you looked at his coaching resume prior to joining the U.S. men's national team. And I'm not saying that, you know, resume is indicative of everything. You need to go coach in the big six in Europe to, you know, ensure that you're going to be a good manager at the international level because that's not the case. He coached for the Columbus crew and then made the big move over to the second division in Sweden where he was sacked because his team was not performing well. And the same thing that haunts the United States haunted that Swedish side in that they weren't potent going forward, something like three mat- three goals scored during his tenure there. And, and that leads me to question where his, you know, onus is as a coach because, you know, you pointed out the England setup and on top of that too, I think defensively and tactically he was pretty solid. I think we knew this coming into the World Cup with his selections of, you know, the attacking players going forward. You know, the omissions of a Pfock and a Pepe, who I know this is, you know, beating a dead horse because we already had this discussion. But it definitely, especially even in his post-match press conference, he talks about Memphis Depay's, you know, how prolific he is in Europe. And then you look at matches played to goals scored, and Jordan Pfock statistically has more than him in, you know, the Champions League. So, you know, that aside... I think Greg, you know, where his onus is as a coach is in the midfield shape and the defensive shape. And just as we saw with the Swedish team, there's still a glaring, you know, question as to what can this team do going forward. And, you know, I I agree that the United States saw 2022 as a stepping stone to, you know, get better for 2026. And, you know, I think Greg is central to that. They chose him as manager because, you know, he brings a little culture to this team, whether it's the Jordans he wears or the bounce passes he does or how he stands up for his guys. That being said, I I think that, you know, if we saw this as a four-year operation, we shouldn't have seen this much lineup turnover as we did throughout qualification, throughout the World Cup. And, you know, it goes back to the same question of, you know, why didn't we have a number nine? And I think that's indicative of Greg still not really knowing what he wants to do going forward and you know how likely is it we're going to say that Haji Wright or Jesus Ferreira will play a major role for the United States men's national team going forward you know will they be included in camps certainly but I don't think the performances we saw from those guys indicate that they are going to be playing you know at the top pedigrees that maybe Jordan Pifak ceiling is at, or, you know, Ricardo Pepe's on the tear in the Air Divisie, and, you know, Josh Sargent's only getting better in the championship, and, you know, obviously his injury kind of sidelined him from competing in that uh, Dutch game. But I still think that if the whole operation was to get to 2026 with a cohesive unit, Greg has done, a, a in my opinion, a, a lousy job of establishing 
who is my my best 11, whether that be, you know, a friendly, whether that be CONCACAF qualifying, whether that be the Nations League, whether that be the Gold Cup, whether that be at the World Cup. There's still not enough consistency where it matters most. And I, I, I'm, I, would, I would say I'm Greg Berhalter in just because I don't think there's a good enough coach out there. I know that the Twitter mill is firing off, you know, the likes of Mourinho, coming. Mourinho, Zidane, all these big names, and there's no shot that they'll coach the United States men's national team. So I think Greg has his, you know, the best finger on the pulse for this team. But I think that U.S. Soccer Federation should try and find a way to implement you know, more outside voices into this squad, you know, hiring, you know, tactical instructors that are more akin to the soccer that's played by the best guys on our team and help Greg find out who is 11 for 2026 is as soon as possible and get them playing one cohesive unit of soccer. Because my last point is when you see guys like Shaq Moore introduced or, you know, Jesus Ferreira introduced, you can see the style of soccer that they're playing is completely different than from what's being played around them. So I I think that Greg needs some help, but I still think he has the job so long as he wants it. I agree with both of you. Um, for Greg, the you know the the decision to walk away or not walk away, I don't really see why he would walk away. He's making one point three million dollars. I think the opportunity to lead. The opportunity to lead your national team in 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 a in a World Cup on home soil—that's not something that a lot of managers get the chance to do. And I think he really loves these guys. I think these guys love him. And I think the culture that he's built is something that that should be complemented, um, despite what you might think of of the decisions he makes tactically. I think there's been a real brotherhood that's been formed in this national team. And I think these guys have all grown up together and they love each other. And I think that's. That's something that's really important for the for this future success of this program. As more young guys start to start to get introduced and they see the culture of this team, and they think that's something they want to be a part of. I think beyond that, you know, the the tactically is is the other big issue. And we right now we don't score enough goals, and that's we we we're we're, we're solid defensively. We're we're pretty solid in the midfield. Um, you know, despite some lapses against the Dutch, but. Going forward is remains the big issue, and the glaring the glaring spot, of course, is a nine. But I think different managers maybe would have tried something else at that position, seeing the 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 lack of maybe apparent talent that we have up there. Maybe trying, you know, a false nine situation with either Wea or Reina. No matter how, I don't think a lot of the the things that fans throw out on Twitter would would work at all. You know, this isn't FIFA; this is real life. But I think. The lack of the lack of goal scoring threat that we had, you know, James, you said, yeah, we had those nice, you know, diagonal balls from full from, um, towards our fullback. Such a beauty. Yeah, but th- I mean, those have happened like three times, yeah. and and it should be happening more. Totally. But you can see that the ideas are there, and I don't think Greg did anything at this World Cup that that warranted him getting, you know, fired. But and I think he's gonna stay, and I'm not really mad about that. I think. There's obvious things that need to be fixed, you know, from a tactical perspective. Like set pieces, we cannot be that bad on set pieces going into a tournament. You know, there's rumors now that we could host the 2024 Copa America. You know, going into a tournament like that, you need to have the ability to score off set pieces in your back pocket. It can't just be, you know, a cross in that's headed away every time. 
it's there's there's got to be some kind of more creativity there. And you know, the fact that we hired a set piece coach for this tournament, like what did that what did that guy do? What 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 were they doing on the training ground? Show up and collect a paycheck. I mean, I think some of our set pieces were some of the worst I've I've seen. And when Pulisic was delivering a good ball, someone was heading it away, and and our runners weren't making the right runs. So obviously, there's a lot to work on tactically still. But I think the identity and the culture of this team is is moving in the proper direction towards 2026. And I think unless, like Keenan was saying, unless some world beater manager is available and and wants to coach us, I think Greg is probably the best we can get right now. And for what it's worth, I mean, obviously, tactically, we have said this for now years, Greg is not the best manager possible for this team. But I still, I would still argue that even if it was just been moments, it has looked better overall. I mean, going into this World Cup, did you think we were going to control the game against Wales in the first half that much? Probably not. Did you think we were going to even have like a foot in the door to win that England game? Definitely not. And uh, I was still skeptical going into the Iran game because I knew we needed a goal to win and they went and did it. So, I mean, yeah, there's t- so much to improve on. And so much potential that they need to tap into. But I, I still think that tactically Greg is good enough for this group to get to get to that uh, next step in 2026, and that's why I'm I'm not just okay with him staying on. It's, I think it's the right decision to keep him on. And, and I know a lot of people say, like, well, he should move into just like a purely recruitment role because he did so well getting Dest and, and Musa and Pifak to commit to the U.S., but I, I feel like part of that is because he is the coach. Right, like as the coach, you recruit players and say, "Come play for me," and the players say, "Yeah, I want to play for you." And I think we see that, you know, the videos in the in the locker dressing rooms after the games. Like, Greg walks into the room, they applaud. Like, they I know it's that's reading into it maybe a bit too much, but they do like him. It's a good culture, and tactically, there's progression, even if it's not as much as we'd like to see. It's too much. It's too risky at this point to not bring Greg back, and so that that's just that's just where I'm at right now. And plus, let's not lie. The drama on Twitter for four more years, it'd be more fun. It'd be a lot more fun if it was Greg and anybody else. Uh, <laughs> I do agree. U.S. Men's <laughs> National Team Twitter sometimes. If I scroll through it for too long, I think I get stupider this is, actively. Yeah. But we'll move on now to the rest of the round of 16 where there were some thrilling matches later on that Saturday. Austra- Argentina rather takes down Australia by a score of 2-1. to one. Australia gets that late own goal. But it really messy masterclass. He he bossed that game, and despite Lautar Martinez's best efforts, Argentina go through. Yeah, yeah. I, I think <laughs> for this Argentina squad, I think we've seen you know market improvement since that opening game in Saudi Arabia. I think they've looked better in each game. They looked better against Mexico, even though they struggled a lot creating chances. I think they looked even better against Poland, and then I think even better than that against Australia. But that sets up a Netherlands-Argentina quarterfinal, which I think we should hop right into because this is a game where we saw what Louis van Gaal did tactically against the United States, an absolute masterclass. It's a different beast a little bit when you're handling Lidl Messi, but this is an Argentina side that at times has looked like you know, they lack ideas going forward. It looks like you know someone like Julian Alvarez is going to give them the best chance to score goals compared to someone like Lautaro Martinez. But heading into that... Argentina Netherlands game. What did you see from Argentina against Australia, and then what are you expecting out of that game? I think it wouldn't be so far to say Messi has to win this World Cup if Argentina is going to win this World Cup. Meaning Messi has to play like the Messi we saw against Australia in order for Argentina to have a fighting chance. Which 
ultimately means Louis van Hall is going to set up his Dutch side to maybe not man mark Messi, but as soon as he gets on the ball in the final third, it's going to be, you know, at least one or two guys going over to cover him. And, you know, Australia gets that late own goal to get back in the game. And then Emmy Martinez has to make a really fine save in the dying minutes to secure, you know, not going to extra time against an Australia side that fought tooth and nail to get back into that game. And then even still caused problems when they were just one goal down. So for this, you know, quarterfinal matchup, I think what's going to be most important, you know, watching it is how does Argentina handle the ball in the midfield into the attacking third? Because we saw it against that Australia game uh, that Arturo Martinez was, you know, lackluster at best, you know, maybe trying to look at best. Trying to look like Lukaku for Belgium, the Inter boys. Or Higuain for Argentina. For real, linking up. So, um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Argentina tries to get through that Dutch back line, which, you know, having watched them play the United States, really didn't give us a sniff. And I know that Argentina tactically and, you know, skill-wise is a little bit more advanced. But I still think it's going to be interesting to see how the Dutch, you know, shadow Messi in terms of his movements and when he's on the ball in the final third you know, how much attention he gets, and maybe that opens up the likes of a, a Di Maria or, you know, maybe even getting some help from the midfield too. I think you could see maybe Messi doing so much off the ball in terms of creating, you know, commotion that it frees up the rest of this Argentine side. I, I do think that Argentina gets through. I think it's going to be 3-1. to one. I think... We didn't get to. We've never seen the Dutch really go for a game. Maybe in that first game against Senegal they did, but that was a Cody Gakpo, you know, wonder goal. Not really a wonder goal, but you know, rising up for that header gave them life in that game. So, I think that if Argentina goes up one nil, it's going to require Van Hall to adjust, and we haven't seen this Dutch side play from behind in this World Cup. And I think Argentina can, you know, exploit that to give themselves more of a cushion. Yeah, I mean, definitely they. There's no stopping Messi at this World Cup, and I think that much is is evident even when you look at the defenders that uh, the Dutch team has. Uh, but with that said, I'd like to I want to talk about the Argentinian defense too, because even though Poland's got this guy named Robert Lewandowski, and th- throughout the group stage they were not really tested by a team's attack except for the Saudi Arabia game, and they kind of failed in that one. They gave up. I mean, that second goal was a worldie, but they uh, they got they got. They got some pushback in that one, and they got some pushback at late against Australia. I think the difference maker, Emmy Martinez, like it, it's an, it's night and day for this Argentina team. We like, we talked about this before. The fact that now that they have a keeper that they can seriously rely on moving forward changes everything. But also, like they're not. I don't think the Netherlands are going to be able to stop Messi. But I also don't think that they're going to be able to keep every goal out. Uh, I think the Netherlands are going to punch back harder than Australia could have, even if Argentina go up and. You're right. They have the the Dutch have not dealt with being the team that's coming from behind, but I don't think Argentina has dealt with a team that's as good going forward and on the break like we saw against the U.S. Uh, if if the Dutch can look as good as they did on the flanks against the U.S. as they do against Argentina, Argentina is going to have a really tough time defending them as those balls come in from the width. So I think this game is probably closer than we're giving it credit for, but there is one big difference maker on the pitch who wears number ten. For the Albi Celeste, and I, you got to give Argentina like the edge in this one just for that and that alone. And I think 
we all know that Messi can win you games, and I think that's what's going to happen in this one. I'm also on Team Argentina for this one. I think it's an interesting, maybe a little, little underrated talking point is which two Argentine center backs are going to start. I think they look better with Lisandro Martinez and Otamendi, but it was Romero and Otamendi against Australia. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be really interesting to see which two Scaloni picks. I just think they look more solid with Martinez, but I, I, I think he's probably going to pick Romero. But are we all going to Argentina? Got to be. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of it's kind of lame, but I think this is the one lock of the the knockouts uh, round of the quarterfinals. I think me. I think we're gonna talk about a much bigger lock next. Yeah, which one's that, James? Well, I was just going down sequentially in order. Like, which one do you think? Croatia, Brazil. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we'll so we'll move to. I think that's a lock. We'll move to both Brazil and Croatia's round of sixteen. We'll games. talk about it. We will. <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> so we'll start with Brazil against South Korea. Now this was a game where you saw Vinny score that goal in the seventh minute, and then immediately I was thinking, okay, this is going to be 4-5. And it was, because South Korea could not defend what Brazil were coming with. And Neymar got the penalty, Richarlison, the absolute wonder goal, just champagne football all around. Then Paqueta, another beautiful volley. South Korea get one back late. But in, in Brazil were really just kind of cruising through that second half. But that first half performance in Brazil, that was a... That was a statement about their intentions at this tournament. That's probably the best football I think we've seen any side play at this tournament. It's definitely the best we've seen Brazil play. You know, they've struggled at times for the group stage without Neymar. You know, they, they would get a goal in the second half like they did against, uh, against um, I'm blanking on the team, but Serbia, and they also did against Switzerland. But I think Brazil showed that why they're favorites to win this tournament because that first half was something to something to admire. Yeah, I think... That South Korea game, after seeing Japan go all the way to penalties, you were kind of expecting something similar from South Korea, just the way they play, very similar similar styles, uh, just in terms of like the sheer amount of willpower that both those teams amass in terms of pressing. And you'd like to think there was a glimmer of hope just because the deck was so highly stacked against South Korea going into that. And then Vinny scores, and then... Neymar scores, and then Richarlison scores, then Paqueta scores, and it's just insurmountable from a South Korea standpoint. But the only reason I'm, you know, hesitant in terms of this matchup to go ahead and say that Brazil's just going to not glide past Croatia, but escape Croatia, is that this Croatia team, for, for my money, has the most experience as a country of the remaining countries at this World Cup in terms of, you know, the same, more or less, returning roster, you know, the ability to see games out, you know, no strangers to penalties, getting past Japan in penalties, you know, having enough quality in the central of the pitch. I think that's been the one glaring omission from any team that the Swiss have played, uh, the Swiss, excuse me, the Brazilians have played this thus far is they haven't played a team that I think can be as dominant in possession as Croatia is. Sure, you might say the Swiss were, you know, with the likes of Granit Xhaka, for example, but I just think Croatia will give Brazil their biggest test, and I think this will tell us how legit Brazil are at this World Cup because their group was relatively easy in terms of what it looked like on paper, but, you know, the thrashing of South Korea, I I just, if I'm Brazil in this moment, I don't want... you. You're kind, at least for me, 
I'm tempted to think they might look past this match and, you know, look at their quarterfinal, excuse me, semifinal destiny, but I, I don't think they can look past this because this a Croatia team that, you know, whether you want to say it was a fluke or not getting to the final in 2018, they still made it, still took down a really strong English side. So I, I think Croatia has the experience to give Brazil a run for their money. And I, I'm going to take... I'm going to take Brazil. I, I mean, at the end of the day, Brazil's potency going forward is just unmatched at this tournament. And I think this is what they like to believe is their best chance to take home a trophy probably for for the next, I'd say, probably after, what would it be, 2030 would probably be the next chance I'd really like Brazil as heavy as a favorite as they are right now. I, I, don't, I didn't want to take anything from Croatia by saying that Brazil to beat them was going to be a lock because I've been very impressed with Croatia at this World Cup. I mean, their group didn't necessarily shake out the way we thought it would with, you know, Morocco looking as impressive as they have. But I still think Croatia in every game that they've played have set the standard for um, for the, the quality of that game and the pace of that game until they played Japan. And I think Japan were probably the better team throughout most of that game. Croatia did... I mean that that Perisic header was a thing of beauty. They clawed they clawed their way back and deservedly got something out of it, and they they earned the result in penalties eventually. But I, now now that they're playing a team where they're not going to dominate the ball that much, and even against Japan, Japan is a very high energy team that doesn't necessarily need to have a lot of the possession. But even then, they they kind of struggle with that. I still think uh, Croatia's defense is a lot better than it gets credit for. Uh, credit for, excuse me. Uh, Vardiola is, is amazing back there. And he just like looks so intimidating with the mask on and everything. I, I loved watching him. And they do have that experience. And I think that is probably their biggest tool. Like Their World Cup experience showed so much in that Canada game when they went down early and then immediately came back. And it just looked like they just flipped a switch. And it was just like that. It looked like men against boys. And I think that Croatia can access that in moments. But Brazil's quality is is far too high for that, and I would argue that Brazil have a lot of experience now too. You look at their team; they've got Champions League winners all over the lineup. They've got an anchor through the center of the pitch of Allison, Thiago Silva, Casemiro, Neymar, and then up top Richarlison, who has been maybe one of the more fun players to watch in this entire World Cup. That spine is probably the best at this World Cup of the remaining teams, and. Uh, for for me, uh, th- this game is is gonna is gonna be all Brazil, all the time. I think Croatia do have enough power to hit him back on the counter, and I do think they'll have their moments where they do control possession. They have this midfielder named Luka Modric. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's he's kind of good, even at his old he's age. Right. Okay. Even at his old age, older than Ronaldo. So, yeah, I, Croatia are gonna punch back, but it but that's what they're gonna be doing. They're gonna be punching back because Brazil is gonna control this one, and I I don't see I don't see Croatia gonna uh getting a result out of this one yeah they could play this game 10 times over and i think brazil win each 10 i think it's certainly more difficult to pass through modric kovacic and brozovic than it is to pass through south korea's midfield Mm -hmm. but still i think the quality from brazil as you guys have been saying is is too strong and i think if i was to pick a lock for these quarterfinals i would pick brazil over croatia That'll move us to the third quarter quarter quarterfinal matchup which is morocco against portugal I want to start with Morocco. They play Spain, a team who starts their tournament off beating Costa Rica 7-0. Everyone is crowning the Busquets, Pedri, Gavi midfield as being the next big thing. This is going to be the best midfield of the tournament. They look solid defensively. Look at all the goals they're scoring. They follow that up with a draw against Germany. No one's going to really penalize you for that. 
And then they lose to Japan, where Japan just goes all out in the beginning of the second half, gets two goals, and Spain, needing a goal, can't create anything. And then Spain against Morocco, again, it's passing for passing's sake. It's, you know, what what I guess you would call tiki-taka, a lot of passing, a lot of, you know, movement. But there's no, there's no ferocity in the attack. There's no any real attacking players that scare you. It's it's passing back and it's passing sideways, looking for an angle to swing it across that's easily defended away by by Morocco. And Morocco is a defensive masterclass. You they let Spain p- control the ball and pass the ball for the entire game, and just waiting for their moment. They had a couple moments on the counter where it looked like they could get a goal in extra time, but it goes to penalties, and then Bono comes up huge, saves all three Spanish pens, and Morocco moving on. But I want to start with first your impressions of this game, your impressions of Spain. And 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 their performance both in this game and in this tournament. And does Morocco have a chance against a team like Portugal? Who big news they bench Cristiano Ronaldo. Gonzalo Ramos comes in and just drops a hat trick and an assist and plays an absolutely incredible game. So there's the whole what are they going to do with Ronaldo? Is he going to be on the bench? But I think this is a, a, a juicier matchup than people are giving it credit for because I think Morocco showed against Spain and against Belgium in the group stage that they can hang. And that it's not at all going to be easy to break them down. And I think in the end, I'll probably take Portugal. But I think Morocco have shown so much of this tournament. And, you know, they've had such great support. It was essentially a home game against Spain. All the Moroccans came to Qatar. And and I think it's a team that you you really want to root for. I I think prior to the World Cup, I thought that Iran were going to be the team that Morocco is in terms of, you know, we're playing a tournament in the Persian Gulf, maybe... They're going to get a lot of support. And then there were a lot of protests going on in Iran, a lot of political things, and that didn't quite happen. And Morocco is the team that is, you know, is really the surprise quarterfinalists that have a lot of the home support really benefiting from the geography of this tournament. Um, and, you know, not only that, but they've played brilliant football. I mean, they, they should be so grateful that the U.S. spanked them around in June, so they fired their manager. Um, and that's where they are now. And I do think they have a chance against this Portugal team. But can you imagine if Spain had a goal scorer as good as Gonzalo Ramos? Like, oh, that would be unbelievable. Not every team can have a goat like that. So, I I was I was so impressed with Portugal though. Uh, I've I've never seen a Portugal team look that convincing on the international stage ever in my life. Even, Even when, when they, they won the Euros, they, they won the Euros and they reached the final. They looked less convincing. Not winning, winning. I think what, what is one game before uh, regulation. Before, they beat Wales uh, in the semifinals. Yeah, and, and, and prior to that yeah. point, every game went into extra time because they were a, a really organized, really well coached team that had a superstar that didn't necessarily have to control games or score loads of goals to progress to the next round. And it was, you know, it was they did it in an ugly way, but in in its own way, it was beautiful. Now. They're genuinely playing uh, beautifully. They decided to bring uh, decided to bring Ronaldo off for Gonzalo Ramos, but not only that, they played with two attacking midfielders and a, a really progressive front three with with uh, you know Bernardo, Bruno, Otavio, and Joao Felix combining. They even had uh, Rafa Leao on the bench. Like this, and this is a tough Switzerland team. And uh, granted, Switzerland did have some yellow cards on the back line, but they played through this team like Swiss cheese. And I, I. I'd, and no pun intended, the, the Swiss. But like, I, I don't even want to, uh, don't even want to take any credit away from Switzerland for being so poor because they are a genuinely good side. And Portugal just completely played through them and did it in a way that I thought I was watching Brazil play. Like in terms of highest quality game, I think 
Brazil and Portugal have set the standard in terms of the attacking prowess that, that is needed to embarrass teams at a World Cup, and Portugal absolutely embarrassed Switzerland. With that said, though, Morocco's defense has looked just excellent. You know, being it, coming away with uh, with that a nil-nil full-time draw against Spain with the quality and possession that they have is impressive, even though you have to you have to look at Spain and say, this is on you guys for not creating enough. Can't take away credit where it's due from Morocco because they've been excellent. I do think they're going to put up a bigger fight than the Swiss did against Portugal. But, excuse me, based on, based on how strong Portugal were in that game, and I think they're going to come into this one with the same mentality, knowing that they're going to have a lot of the ball, knowing that more is going to be expected of them to break down a team. They're going to play with that same mentality and that same high attacking energy, and they have to be the favorite. And, and I think they're going to do it because... That 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 performance that change blew my mind. I thought they were good in the group stage. I didn't think they were good enough to win the World Cup. Now I I'm starting to believe that this team could win a World Cup. Yeah, and I'm just gonna be quick. I think the the benching of Ronaldo was a necessary change for Portugal. I think it. Keep going. Keep going. Okay, I think it changed how they attack. And you know, as good as Ronaldo's been in his past and throughout his career, he's not the same player. And you know, the dynamics that. That front three we saw against the Swiss gave the Swiss defense heaps of problems, whether it was, you know, the six goals that were scored were indicative of that, but also just the way the game set up, you know, the wingers coming back in, a striker that actually, you know, gets behind the ball and, you know, plays defensively sound in his own half. The only reason I'm skeptical about this game is because, you know, we've talked about how good Morocco has been in this World Cup, and I think that's all credit to how they defend because they defend like it's their dying wish to not let the goal, you know, the ball go into the net. We saw it against Spain, you know, Amrabat, absolutely, you know, even Amrabat to Hakiming to Ziyech. It doesn't matter where they're lined up on the pitch. They are committing numbers back into the box to, you know, snuff out any attacking chance that the Spanish could conjure. And, you know, it showed that they were comfortable being behind the ball. They didn't mind that Spain shrugged together a thousand passes to their like two hundred fifty at the end of extra time. It didn't matter. And let's give them credit too. Morocco had a couple quality looks. Yep. They had that chance in the ninetieth minute that was put away from a corner. Another chance in uh, extra time that required a good save. And then even in the second half of extra time, a counterattack against the run of play that eventually the ball gets overrun by their striker. So. I think this is, from what we've seen from Morocco, this is another familiar game. You know, they had a tough group where they knew they'd have to come into this World Cup ready to defend, and so far they've impressed beyond belief with how much they're willing to commit to defending. And then when they get to go forward, they do look potent. So I wouldn't be surprised if Morocco takes down Portugal. I think if we see that Portugal side that we saw against Switzerland, then I think there's maybe one team in this World Cup that can compete with them, maybe. That's how good they looked against the Swiss. So, for me, it's not so much about what what Morocco's going to do. It's more about how the Portuguese come out. Because I think if we see the Portugal that we saw in the group stage, which at times had me asking for more, Morocco can steal a game from them easily. And you're definitely right. And I I will talk a little bit about um, uh, Roman Seiss in the central defense. The The way he organizes that team as well, they are never like caught out of shape really. That's why they were so hard to just hit quickly too, because they would they they'll get the ball and they'll run at you quickly too. Where they have power on the wings, you know, Buffal, Ziek, and they have 
you mentioned Amrabat. Like the way he he was just an absolute rock in the middle. Like he doesn't let anything get by him. Um, so I I definitely think that Morocco. I've, obviously, Portugal are going to be setting the standard in this game, and Morocco are going to be playing against them. So uh, that, and that's how this game is going to go. But Morocco definitely can get a result out of this. I will point out another really good decision from Santos for Portugal: the decision to start Diogo Dalot over Cancelo, because not a lot of pop, like, and this is going to be the case in Morocco. Morocco is going to hit them on the counter. Joao Cancelo gets caught out on the counter almost more than Trent Alexander-Arnold does. So to have Dalot is going to be potentially a bit more of a st- stable force in the back, as well as keeping Leal on the bench. If you have, if you're losing to Morocco, I mean, if you ha- and you have, you're going to have at least two of either Ronaldo and uh, Joao Felix or Rafa Leal off the bench. That's there's a really good energy uh, presence too off the bench that not a lot of national teams have. And I don't think Morocco would be able to deal with that, even if they do go up. I'm going to take Portugal 1-0. I think it's going to be a similar game to that Spain game, but I think Portugal have a little bit more cutting edge than Spain have shown in this tournament. That leaves one semifinal left. We've got a little under 10 minutes to go, or one quarterfinal left, and that's England against France. Maybe the biggest one of these of these quarterfinals. France defeated Poland in the round of 16-3-1. Kylian Mbappe, I've used the words masterclass to describe Messi's performance against Australia. I think it's safe to use the same word to describe what Kylian Mbappe did against Poland, just proving why he's one of the best in the world and why he he puts France on another level. And England come out against Senegal, and people have been clamoring for, for Phil Foden to start. Phil Foden gets the start in the knockout stage. Also, they change the midfield. They take out Mason Mount. Jordan Henderson comes in and winds back the clock a little bit and delivers a really, really good performance in the middle. England looked very solid with the Rice-Henderson-Bellingham midfield, which looks on paper really defensive, but it, it worked against Senegal. And I think it's just a really, really interesting matchup because there's the the question of how can England contain Kylian Mbappe and how can France contain you know this English attack that's looked better um, looked better against Senegal and looked better you know at the conclusion of the group stage with some different combinations being used. But I think, Keenan, I'll start with you. Just your first impressions of this game and then and then a pick, England or France. Well, I think this is the biggest game in terms of footballing history in the quarterfinals. And maybe, you know, depending who we get in the final, you know, at this World Cup, just, you know, geopolitical between France and England, footballing history between France and England. It's setting up to be a game in which I know a lot of people are reckoning Mbappe to take over. Southgate said that they've been working on a plan for four years on how to contain Mbappe if they face him in a World Cup. It's a game in which you'd expect him to take over, but I I don't see that happening. I know there's a lot of rumors if you know getting Kyle Walker into the side because he's got the pace to go like for like with Mbappe, you know, including maybe Southgate didn't include more attacking-minded players in his midfield to force Mbappe to get behind the ball and take advantage of his defensive weakness. I ultimately think, for me, this game is going to be won by the midfields. I think France's midfield has been their only, you know, with the injuries that are there, and, you know, yeah, Kamavinga's doing a boss job when he's on the pitch, but it's not the French midfield that, you know, saw them win the World Cup in 2018. Everyone knows that. And I think, you know, as you said, Nick, it looked like in that game against Senegal that maybe Henderson, Bellingham, and Rice is the solution for an English side that was, you know, trying to figure out what their attack-minded, you know, possession was going to look like in terms of who's in the midfield, who's on the wings, who's up top. Um, I I think that England ultimately wins this game. I think they win 2-1. to 
I think we're going to see Phil Foden start again because every time he's been on the pitch for England at this World Cup, he's been nothing short of incredible. I think Harry Kane, you know, he got his first goal at the World Cup in Senegal. I think that was the monkey off his back. I think he's going to dominate this game. And I, I, I like England. I know that, you know, the room, you know, everybody likes England to bottle a World Cup game or any, you know, international competition. But I think this is their get, you know, they're finally their big one to win is against France and sets them up with a, a semifinal matchup. I I think, yeah, this is the one you circle your calendar for. I I think, you know, if if we're going to take the same blueprint that we did when we're talking about Argentina, saying that Messi is going to be the difference maker, I think you have to say that if there's a difference maker in this game, it's going to be the guy killing Mbappe because he, did, I think he's genuinely the best player in the world right now. And, and I'm glad you brought up the midfield uh, for both of these uh, teams, guys, because that England midfield against Senegal was, was, was really, really important that they had the stable force of Henderson and Rice, as opposed to what we saw, you know, against the U.S. even where... Jude Bellingham had a tough time dictating the pace of play because he was constantly bombarded with pressure. And that's that's what having a stable force like Jordan Henderson does. And he goes and gets a goal in the, even in the game. I think having Kyle Walker as your right back to defend against Kylian Mbappe is a big deal because you have someone who can keep up with him for pace. But we saw Kyle Walker get uh, victimized pretty badly by Ishmael Assar against the Senegal. So I wouldn't be too I wouldn't be too uh, too bullish about Walker's chances about uh, against uh, Mbappe because Mbappe is just on another level and he was just embarrassing the Polish I I think that the French midfield as well has been a pleasant surprise because Chouamani has been excellent and even Adrian Rabiot who I, I am like vocally against him being even a remotely part of a top European side because I've never thought he was that good he has been balling out in this World Cup he just controlling trolling not only controlling uh, just possession in the midfield, but he has been very, very good in the attacking third as well, linking up the midfield and the attack in a way that um, unlocks the best out of their super pacey, talented wingers, and even Olivier Giroud is scoring goals now. I think this France team probably has just a bit too much for England. I'm going to go France over England, and I think that the French right now are taking away my ability to say that the curse of the champions is real, because I used to be a big supporter of the curse, and Kylian Mbappe and co. are changing that for me. This is a matchup with a lot of history, and I think we're going to see some history on display. I think it's going to be 1-1, and France wins on penalties. That's and we awesome. see England, as they typically do, not against Colombia in, in 2018, but bottle a penalty shootout and and villainize some of their players for the next four years and then do it all again four years from now. But I think that'll about do it for this episode of FUVFC. You know, depending on when we record next week, could be a semifinal preview or a semifinal reaction and a final preview. Whatever it is, we'll be here. Nick Guzman, Keenan Troy, James Burley saying so long. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. This truly is the best time of year to be a soccer fan. So thanks. <laughs>